Is this the reading room? Yes, I'm Saad Manzul. And I'm Travis Howard. This is Reading Room Talk. Thank you for pressing play. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, welcome back, everyone. Welcome, welcome. We have a very special guest today, a legend in the making, an author, Uh current UPenn medical student. This is Jasmine Brown, author of Twice as Hard. How are you today? I'm great. How are you all? Thank you for taking the time, Jack. Yes, we know you're busy just book touring and being famous and everything. So we, pro- <laughs> we appreciate you making the time. <laughs> yes, yes. So take us. So usually we say take us back to med school, but you're currently in med school. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, very, very right memories. So tell us, what is your toughest class or rotation, you would say right now? <sighs> um, so I've essentially finished rota- uh, clerkship year um mm-hmm. and i was actually just took step one uh, congrats congrats ago. that's a big oh, yeah Congratulations. thank you <laughs> yeah um most difficult i feel like clerkships were pretty difficult for me especially in the beginning mm-hmm. i don't have any family in medicine and mm-hmm. while i had shadowed before i didn't understand what clerkship year would be like um, right, I right. That it would be like, okay, I'm finally done with classes. I can just be in the hospital. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then I realized, like, I'm actually supposed to be like working full time and being a student full time. Yep. And yeah. that was challenging for me. That adjustment, um, especially after like being at Oxford for my master's, where <laughs> did the history of medicine degree and it's just very different from a pre-med or medical curriculum yeah. a lot more writing i actually didn't have any tests um it was just like papers that i had to submit wow yeah, yeah. it is that is not the same as third year <laughs> no. no not at all and so <laughs> lots of memorization like little factoids not like not like that at all yeah exactly. that exactly the just intense like all the studying I had to do in addition to being like low on the pedestal within the hospital system and like having to have somebody dismiss me as opposed to me just knowing like when I can leave and feeling like I have more agency over my time. Oh yeah. It's, 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 it's tough. It's like, uh, you know, we always talk about the performance part. Like it's very theatrical. You're trying to like, Mm-hmm. You know, make it look like you're busy and make it look like you're reading <laughs> and like they ask you oh, to yeah. leave and you have to say, no, 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 I'm going to stay. It's like, no, let me stay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's so different. It's so different than having like the autonomy of just like, you know, doing your master's and, you know, kind of doing the research yourself. It's 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 very different. So I can imagine the transition has been a little different, a little different. So. Yeah. yeah. And, and the shelf exams are challenging like it wasn't they like are. oh just they a little are. bit of work here plus like these longer hours in the hospital so I think it was difficult like I guess because from grad school like at Oxford I really got to think about the balance that I want in my life and mm-hmm. like investing time and in people um, yes and I just realized, like, that's something I really want in my life. But in uh, clerkships, I felt forced to give that up in many ways. Um, Absolutely. 
and and that was really yeah. hard and and then having to think about like why am i doing this like why am i suffering in this way is it really worth it um and that is the yeah. question everyone asks in med school <laughs> <laughs> what am yeah. i doing multiple times <laughs> along the yeah, it's it's a regular question. And I, and I think it was difficult because at that point, I didn't have like a strong conviction in an individual specialty. Like I just felt like I yeah. like different aspects of medicine. I'll find out on clerkships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But with the early clerkships, not feeling like I could really see myself in those specialties, it felt difficult to be like, oh, I'm still working towards this thing. I'm giving up so much, but I'm not yeah. even terrified. There's yeah. actually a field here that I really like. Um, it's funny because you're like, you'll be there. You'll like no day too. Like I can't do this. Yeah. And you have like eight weeks yeah. left. It's uh, it's tough. Yeah, oh my god. Yeah. It's so true, man. Yeah, you, you know, I feel like it's a. You're always adjusting. You're always yeah. trying to figure it out. Right. You know, like as you said, you didn't have anyone in medicine to kind of give you like the real deal. You know, they don't describe it in such a way where you think you have to be in the hospital for eight, 12 hours a day and then go home and study. They, they forget to tell, tell you that part. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, and so you, <laughs> when, when you realize you have to, maybe after the first shelf, yeah. it's, you know, you, got, you, got, you have a major shelf <laughs> under your belt and you didn't do as well as you wanted to. So you're like, right. well, I mean, maybe by the third or fourth clerkship, you have it down where, you know, you, you can adjust, you've adjusted and you figured it out. I think that's, you know, another unspoken um, quality or, or, characteristic a student has to have when they're going through and i don't think enough credit is given to those who are able to do that do that well yeah yeah and i definitely agree it's like something that's not really spoken about like a lot of people struggle with those exams like at my school um i've heard as high as like 30 percent of the class have to retake at least one exam yeah 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 that's a lot yeah and that's an ivy league school yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, it, and people don't speak about it so then it's like wait i should be adjusting to this faster like why am i not doing well enough like is there something wrong with me mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. no that's so true it's it, great insight it's it's it, it tough is. a lot yeah it really is a lot so but but well, i tell think us. hearing you say that and and hearing us talk about it for any listeners i think you know you realize that you know it's okay and you're normal. Yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm very happy that we're able, you're able to talk and give that perspective that Sadna I may have forgot, you know. We, we were a little bit, a little bit older. <laughs> now nah, you're in the mix. She's in the mix right now. In the mix. Exactly. There she is. <laughs> but it's but I think like when you talk to other people like, you know, it, it just feels good to know that like other people went through it. And yeah. it's a normal feeling and you know, you can get through it and it's just important to like feel like you're not the only person going through it, even though yeah, people exactly. act like they're not. Like everyone's going through. Very it. Very performative, yeah. Very, very. Yes. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, you should, yeah, you should get like an Oscar at the end of med school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it's it. True, it's true. But tell us, take us back. So tell us, where are you from? Where's your family from? Where'd you grow up? So I'm from New Jersey. That's where I grew up. My family. <laughs> My dad's from New York. My mom is from Missouri. And that's actually, I went to Wash U for undergrad. Oh, shout out. Yeah, so. Very cool, yeah. very cool. And did you grow up in Jersey? Yeah, I grew up in Jersey. So tell us, what part of Jersey did you grow up and how was it there? 
I'm from Central New Jersey, which I know is a controversial. Um, like some people say that doesn't really exist, but yeah. I say it's real. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and well, okay, I partially grew up in Indiana and then moved to New Jersey when I was like young. So yeah. I guess both, but. Um, but you're claiming Jersey though. Yeah, I claim Jersey. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like it fits my personality. Like I like to travel. I like yeah. lots of different cities close by. I like taking trains as opposed to driving. So this yeah. is more my vibe. Um, You're not a flatlands person. Yeah, I, I don't know if I even thought about that. Like flat. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, we I grew up in the Midwest, so I'm from the flatlands as well. It's it's yes. You know, like even here on the East Coast, it's nice to be able to drive to a beach. Like yes. where I grew up in Illinois, like you'd have to like fly three hours to like get to a beach. So that's cool. Plus, I like so. Tell us about your community. Was it diverse? Were there a lot of uh, African Americans? Was it a mix? What would you say? Um, it's funny. So my high school never revealed the like demographic breakdown. So I always thought it was small. And then I went to Wash U, and then I realized it was bigger than I thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about that transition. Yes. Yeah. So I would say my high school probably had around 10% Black students. Um, yeah. But it was it was a difficult, or I would say not even before high school. Like, I had, so predominantly white neighborhoods or, commu- like, schools, and... Mm-hmm had classmates even like in elementary school telling me that they didn't think I would be able to do well in school or in a STEM like sciences because I'm black and black people Mm -hmm. are stupid um wait wait you had people tell you that and this was 1990 what (laughs) it was probably the early 2000s early 2000s wow yeah it's like you know this just happened yeah, telling me that I still remember like one of them was like we were maybe in gym class and it was like volleyball and then this girl was telling me this. Um but yeah, so how did that make you feel? Like how did you Yeah, how'd you how respond? respond? Yeah. I don't remember how I responded actually. Like I probably I don't know if I really said much. I, I think that, I, so something that I learned in college actually was that I would um, like proactively silence myself in those types of situations because I didn't want to be labeled as the angry, loud black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And with, I started at WashU in 2014, a few months after Michael Brown was killed. And oh. so yeah. there was a lot of discussion around police brutality, Black Lives Matter, a lot of like protests on my campus and nearby. And it really gave me the space to realize like that how I was um, try like had this stereotype threat and slowly trying to overcome that and, and find my voice and, and not be afraid to speak up when people hurt me. Um, yeah. So yeah. while I don't yeah. So I don't remember exactly what I said, but just based off that, I, I probably didn't say that much. But I, for a long time, felt like I had to prove myself and I had to, like, do really well in school to prove that all these things people were saying were wrong and that, like, Black people are smart and are capable. Um, and, Twice as hard. And I, 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just hard to title. Yeah. It wasn't until I got the Rhodes Scholarship, actually, um, in my last year at college, where I felt like I could let go of that weight. Like, I felt like, one, these these hateful messages that people bring to me are illogical in the first place. So, like, I can't counter it with logical evidence. Um, Like, if the Rhodes Scholarship isn't good enough to prove that, like, nothing will, so I might as well, like... (laughs) let go of that and stop being so hard on myself yeah yeah no that makes sense i mean like i think and as you like kind of you know like kind of have more experiences you just start to realize that like just making it to wash you that's a huge accomplishment like yeah. not like the road scholarship or even making it to college you know it's all people have different starting points and the fact yeah. that you started in jersey and you know made it out there and middle of the ferguson situation i mean that's that's awesome that's awesome some accomplishment already just to like make it down there and like survive and be able to like stay in school you know like mm-hmm. those are the like major major accomplishments so yeah. yeah and it sounds like you found your voice jasmine how, how did you do yes. this i think it was just reflection like i remember one um protest that was happening at, like with some of my classmates in our like cafeteria at washu and it was like a wow people kind of lay down as if they were dead. Um, and I don't know, I was just thinking about it, like if it's okay for them to speak up about how they feel uh, and these like right, like justifiably painful and traumatic experiences, mm-hmm. why can't I? Yeah. 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 It makes sense. It makes sense. It, it's a, it is contagious, you know, it's a, yeah. and um, well, that's great. I'm glad you were able to do that. And you had like a true like college experience, you know, like not just education, like academic wise. Like it sounds like it was, I mean, you were in the middle of all of that. And that was motivating, it sounds like for you too. So um, now were you interested in medicine like when you went to uh, Wash U or did it kind of just come about? Yeah, I was interested. So when I was in high school, I felt like I needed to know what I would major in in college. And so... I was thinking about things that I find interesting and I actually was drawn to psychology because I wanted to understand why we are the way that we are as people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And at the time I wasn't able to take psychology classes in my school. So then I found like open courseware online and started taking psychology courses there. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, and I really enjoyed those. Sometimes I would just be taking random courses, like just enjoyed learning. I don't like tests, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> learning new things are, are cool. Um, yeah, no, there is one professor that introduced neuroscience as an intersection of psychology and biology, and I always enjoyed and thrived in my science classes, and so it felt like a really good fit for me. Um, some point later in high school, I found out about the Brain Bee, which is this neuroscience competition for high school students. Oh, please tell us. Yes. Yeah, it was. It's an international competition. They have like local competitions in various cities throughout the U.S. and then there's the national and international. So I, I did that my senior year in high school, and I, I really loved it. It was great connecting with other students interested in neuroscience and then meeting 
graduate students and faculty. Um, and that's how I actually got introduced to research. Um, mm -hmm. There's graduate students encouraging me to get involved in research and telling me that that was actually something that I could do, which I didn't realize. And so I, I started getting involved and in I did a like research internship in Miami the summer after my senior year in high school. And that got me more involved in, in neuroscience. And um, I think with that heavy science interest and always liking to be around people and caring for people, mm -hmm. medicine like made sense to me. So I, I went into WashU, actually a double major in uh, neuroscience and painting, because um, I also had this artistic side. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, 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 yeah, I, I love that. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, but the studios, the long art studios, and then the science labs didn't really complement each other. So I ended up actually dropping the art major and yeah. just doing neuroscience. But um, that's what art. I kind of art you can always do, though, which is awesome. Exactly. And, and this book was felt like a way for me to really express and tap into my creativity. So it was a really fun project. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So you kind of mentioned it before. So tell us about applying to the uh, for the Rhodes Scholarship and, you know, being awarded that. Yeah. So for Rhodes, I had a mentor who encouraged me. Um, oh, please I, shout him out. <laughs> um, I, her name is Robin Maddie. Um, mm -hmm. She is currently at UVA, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, but basically, like, I had studied abroad in China my sophomore year, and I really enjoyed that experience. Um, and I think the combo of, like, the international um, connection plus advocacy work that I was doing, which kind of came out of experiencing prejudice in the lab. Um, yes. That I think those things, some, I don't know, whatever it was, she was like, you should think about this program. I didn't know much about it. And I was like, I don't know, about two years off. Like, <laughs> that doesn't really fit in my plan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, like, and I think for a while, actually, like, because I had studied abroad in China my sophomore year, and then every summer I was participating in research. Mm -hmm. I knew that I would have to take at least one year off. And initially that felt almost like a failure um, to not be following and they what do I thought make was you the feel right like path. That. Yes, they do make you feel like that. Yeah. That's not true. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm so grateful that that ended up happening because I yeah, I didn't know how big of a deal or how like great of a opportunity the Rhodes Scholarship was, but mm -hmm. Through her encouragement, I eventually decided to look into it. Uh, and I was just really inspired by the current scholars. I felt yeah. like from learning a bit about their background and work that they did, that I could grow as a person um, by being in that community. And I also still loved, I, I felt like I grew so much already from being abroad. And, and I did want to explore international fellowships for that time off or time in between undergrad and, and medical school. So it seemed like a good fit. And I was really excited when I got the opportunity. But I guess in terms of the application process, first you submit application to your school. 
and then they decide if they will nominate you. Then you submit the application to the Road to Trust, the organization, and they evaluate the application, select finalists, and then the finalists um, were broken up into different districts based on either where we're from or where we go to school. We can choose one of those two. Yeah. And then we have the interview. Um, and so my interview, I, my district is based off of WashU. Um, mm-hmm. So I actually had my interview in, in Chicago. Um, you mentioned Illinois. Yes. And um, yeah, and then after my interview, it was a, t- it's like first day, it's like a two part thing. So day one is like a cocktail party type thing. Mm-hmm. And then day two, you have interviews. And then they tell you at the end of the day, like who they selected. I see. I see. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. That's uh, so you've been through many application processes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. So tell us, how did you feel when they told you that you were going to be awarded? I was in shock. Like each stage, mm-hmm. I was surprised that I was selected. Um, like that my school um, endorsed me and then that I was a finalist. I think I just had this perception of Rhodes Scholars. I'm like, this high pedestal and something that I didn't see myself that like level. Um, and so, yeah, I was shocked and it wasn't until they let me call my family when it really like set in like, Oh <laughs> yeah, they, it was me. Um, yeah. Oh, that's and, awesome. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. Like I, I felt like I was on cloud nine for a couple of weeks after that and, and still was in surprise because I didn't, I still didn't fully, grasp like yeah how like highly regarded the scholarship is like i was on all these like newspapers like i was in the new york times like i was on some like tv shows and stuff and i yes. was just like what <laughs> like i i wasn't expecting all that yeah. like i don't know i'm kind yeah. of a private person <laughs> uh, yeah but yeah, and the experience was really incredible. So I'm really. It sounds. Grateful. It sounds like you're very process oriented, which kind of probably kept you focused and not worried about like what you may or may not, you know, may or may not get it, or like what it actually yeah. was. Almost like an advantage to like not know how big of a deal it was. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, that's awesome though. So, so tell us about your time. Where did you go, and uh, what did you do? You kind of alluded to the master's program. Yeah. So the Rhodes Scholarship they fund studies at Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, and initially, because I had been on that MD PhD track, my first plan was to do a DPhil in neuroscience there, um, which is the UK version of a PhD. Gotcha. And I think after learning about the number of weeks off that PhD students had there versus uh, graduate students and top courses, uh-huh. that was kind of what led me to think beyond neuroscience because while I wasn't expecting to get the scholarship, once I did, uh, the things that I was really excited about was getting to know the community and mm-hmm. traveling. Um, yeah. And so having only a few weeks off in the year didn't align with that. Like I was used to an undergrad schedule where you have like summer, you have like a winter break. Um, yeah, so you're always doing something with that time. So it makes yeah. Sense. Yeah, so then I ended up, I found out about this history of medicine or the full titles like history of science, medicine, and technology. And mm-hmm. because in undergrad, I had gotten um, really involved in advocacy work around 
trying to increase diversity and like research mm -hmm. careers that seemed like a good fit for me because i didn't understand why this prejudice in the research medicine field was so prevalent um, mm -hmm. but i had many friends black and latinx who could talk about like like prejudice that they had in those yeah. environments um and so i felt by doing this degree i could get to the historical roots of that prejudice absolutely um, better understand what was going on around me and as i was starting to do that research for my dissertation i realized that there is limited literature looking at the intersection of physicians who are both black and female and so uh -huh. that seemed like a, a good fit for me since i'm a black woman so interesting perfect fit exactly medicine. yes yes so in a way your research has has probably inspired you um um more than you would have anticipated for sure <laughs> I, I actually had never met a black woman physician before I did this project. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Who have you met, yeah. who have you met and, and who has made impressions in your life? Yes. So the first intros, which wasn't like in person, but just learning about these women through oral history, some of the earlier black women physicians. Um, I read about in the beginning of my book being in my dorm room at Oxford and listening to this interview with Dr. Machen, who was a physician. Um, she was born in 1896, I believe. Um, and she was in medical school in the 1920s. And she was just speaking about her life. And it felt like she was, if so her voice just felt very familiar, like the tenor of it almost as if like she was mine grandmother or something and oh, i yeah. could almost imagine us like sitting across the room from each other and her telling me about her life so those earlier um like getting access to those archives of women from the turn of the 20th century was really meaningful for me um Absolutely. but then also meeting some women in person like i interviewed a few women that were involved in NMA, um, mm -hmm. the National Medical Association, which is Shout national yes. organization for Black physicians, which I learned in my research came about because the American Medical Association, which is now for all physicians, initially would not allow Black physicians. Yep, it wasn't at the time. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So the wow. NMA was formed and it continues to be this great community to uplift black physicians. And mm -hmm. one of the physicians that I was interviewing, she invited me to go to the conference. Um, this was a, it wasn't the national NMA conference. It was like the NMA's conference in conjunction with the Congressional Black Caucus actually in DC. Yeah. Um, then I did that while I was in grad school at Oxford and it was so awesome, like being in this room filled with black physicians. Um, yes. That was a really amazing and uh, uplifting experience yeah. for me. Um, Just the history, the history in that room. I'm sure you could like you could feel it like the yeah. people went through their story, their journeys to like just make it to that point. It's uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So that, that's awesome that you were able to kind of feel that. And uh, yeah. 
And that kind of sounds like that kind of motive continued to motivate you. Yeah, I I felt really privileged to be able to have this dedicated time to mm-hmm. focus on this topic compared to an undergrad where I was balancing school, like pre-med classes, like neuroscience research. And so this advocacy work was yeah. whatever I could fit in on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, Versus at Oxford, where this was literally what I was studying. I was allowed to invest as much time in it that I wanted to and um, just felt so inspired by these women's stories. Like initially, before I was able to find out about individual women, I just was learning about all the barriers that have existed for the past uh, 150 plus years and, and even learning on a global scale how these like tools of oppression have been implemented in other countries um for instance in south africa during apartheid Mm -hmm. and so when i was first learning about that it felt really discouraging like wow this goes back Mm -hmm. even farther than i thought um but once i learned about individual physicians and their full life journey it made me feel like, okay, well, there are these barriers that exist and many of which that I could really relate to, like some of them speaking about how people told them that they were only in the school because of affirmative action. They weren't actually good enough or- Exactly, right. yeah. They had right. these handicaps because they're black and, and they're women. Um, and so being able to see those obstacles that I resonated with, but then to still see them overcome and have really successful and impactful careers in medicine. It, it encouraged me. And actually, um, we were talking about the challenges with clerkship year and adjusting to that. Mm-hmm. I, there were a couple of times where like, can I actually do this? Like, can I get through this? Mm-hmm. And by that point, I had finished my the manuscript for the book. Um, and we were working on production phase of like coming up with the book cover. And once mm-hmm. we had settled on the book cover, which is, this um, a black woman yes. in a white coat. Um, there were multiple times where I would look at that picture and it would remind me of the woman in my book and all the other black physicians that I have learned about since then and just be like, okay, like this is really hard, but <laughs> I, I just, right. just felt like they were giving me that strength. Like I, I can get through this. Yeah, you're able to frame it. You're able to frame it like based on like what other people have been through and like how much exactly. tougher it was for them. And that's important because that kind of gives you the motivation to just keep going. And sometimes yeah, that's, you know, that's what that's what med school is about. Just keep going. Just don't stop. You know, you might not. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 I'm listening. I'm listening. You might not. Go ahead. Yeah, and I was going to say, you might not like be the best at every rotation or every class or every, you know, like step. But like the big thing is you just keep going. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. You have to. And I think you've tapped into something, um, Jasmine, with just being able to stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before you and and using them. You have to learn about them. You have to know about them first. And that's a huge deficit that I think you've helped so many, many that you probably will never meet cross that bridge and know of of folks that look like them, have similar backgrounds and, and who have made it. And I think it's just a it's just a wonderful thing that you've done. So yeah, tapping into that the ancestors it's 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 that's a great way to keep 
keep going. It is, it is. And I was going to say, I feel like, you know, you probably are able to like relate to a lot of them. And I know that you probably definitely relate to uh, Dr. Dorothy Farabee, who's also an AKA. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about her story? Yeah, Dr. Farabee. It was really cool. So it was cool that there's a couple of physicians in there who are a part of the Divine Nine, a few AKs, a few Deltas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't intentional, like, oh, I need to find somebody who's also Greek. But it was cool to <laughs> see that kind of come out and see that connection. So Dr. Farabee, mm-hmm. um, she was initially... <sighs> I forget which state she was born in, but it was somewhere in the South. Correct. Yeah. Moved her up North um, to Boston with her, um, with her aunt, presumably to give her this opportunity to pursue medicine because even at a young age, she was interested in medicine and Mm -hmm. it wasn't at that time, they were not allowing any black people to enter medical school Mm -hmm. in the South besides Meharry. Um, yeah, the historically black college, and, and so. And I was gonna say, like you mentioned this before, but the Flexner report is also important for people in the history. Like it closed a lot of, you know, African American medical schools at the time when it was uh, published. So yeah, it's important that like to, to realize that people did to make it to med school. Like there were more med schools at one point that were African American, but a lot of them were shut down. You know, at the time of this report that came out. So it sounds like her family sent her up north, basically. Yeah, they sent her to Boston, and so she ended up going to medical school at, at Tufts University, mm-hmm. and there were four other women. They were white, um, but they really bonded with each other because of the intense sexism that they experienced at their school with mm-hmm. a lot of professors not really acknowledging them or giving the same op- giving them the same opportunities as their male counterparts. Yeah. And um even not giving them the same clinical experiences which is something that i would like took for granted with my with being in medical school now I just assume like all medical students will get the experience in internal medicine and, and general surgery which is but funny for, i was gonna say like that's what the flexing report was about to standardize stuff but then yeah. when she gets in it's like not standardized it's so messed up yeah, they're like, oh, the women medical students, you all can be in the foot soaking clinic. Like, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is different. But um, they teamed up <laughs> with each other, created a study group, um, and really worked to overcome that gap in knowledge that the professors weren't teaching them. And mm-hmm. Dr. Farabee actually graduated number one in her medical school class. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure the gap was huge because they would not give her number one if it was like a questionable number one. No, exactly. <laughs> like she earned that. Um, but still, right. residency programs rejected her um, saying, oh, her application wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. But then all her male, like white male classmates were accepted into residency programs months before her. And yeah. she had to get help from her brother to suggest that she moved to DC um, and look into a program there. This was through like, I think like the national hospital, Um, but there was a written test, which she did well on, but then an oral test and the male judges were like, we want these spots for our sons. So like, we're not going to let you in. Um, Which is completely, it hasn't completely died yet. That whole nepotism. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. That's not died. It's, it's still, still alive. alive. 
Yeah, Mm -hmm. but thankfully he introduced her to a professor at Howard University. Um, And so then she ended up going to residency at Cleveland Hospital Uh that's affiliated with Howard. Um, And she had been involved in advocacy work even from as a resident, um, working to create child um, aftercare services for Black kids as at the time none of the like daycare programs in DC would accept black children. Um, right. Right. She worked with the sorority Alpha Kappa Alpha to create and lead the Mississippi health project, which was the first U S mobile health clinic mm-hmm. in the U S and. Yeah. That's which, a funny story too. Like you said, I feel like, can you kind of tell that story about how it became a mobile clinic? It wasn't supposed to be. Yeah. So this group of women, presumably all or many of them being sores, they went down to Virginia and, or not Virginia, Mississippi. Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, and at first they were actually going to take the train down, but the person that they would buy the tickets from said, like, he's not going to sell that many tickets to black people. So <laughs> they <laughs> went down with a caravan of cars and their goal was to provide care for black sharecroppers. But then when they went there, the white plantation owners were not a fan of these black women trying to provide health care to their workers. And initially said no with some wooing. They said, okay, you can set up some clinics. But then they told the black uh, people working on the plantation, like, you can't leave this plantation. You have to keep working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there was no one that showed up to their clinic. And when they found out what had happened, then they said, like, okay, well, we'll bring it to them. And so then they packed up all their supplies and went plantation to plantation providing care for the black Innovation. Exactly. Oh, yeah. That's so awesome. And shout out that train person for not giving them tickets. <laughs> yeah. Because they're able to go down with their cars and create the mobile clinic. So, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. That's a great story. And there's so many great stories throughout the book. We encourage everybody to get it. Um, yes. And we actually, I actually think you should rename it 20 times as hard. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to really quantify like yeah. the challenges and. There, so it was like a combo with deciding on the title of, mm-hmm. for one, this is something that's like commonly said in the black community of like you have to work twice as, twice as hard to get half as much. And there's research showing that if, if you have two applicants with the same resume, one has a black sounding name, one has a white sounding name, the person with a white sounding name is going to get the job much more often. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it was on top of that, like a play of the intersection of being both female and yeah. black. Um, Not the perfect title. It's a perfect title. Yeah. yeah it's, but uh, it's interesting. Like, I think early on, it's it's very um, clear, this dynamic challenges that come with being both a woman and black in the space. Um, but something that surprised me, I didn't realize until I entered medical school, is how that's been changing in the past few decades. And um, learning about some medical school classes where there could be 10, 20 black students, only like one or two of them are men. Yeah. Um, and and then finding that with some of the AAMC data that I was looking at of how 
in the around the 1960s with the civil rights movement every minority group and white women all increased in their representation of number of students entering medical school except for black men and that for them it plateaued and then by the 1970s because of the difference and slope of like the number of black women entering medicine compared to the number of black men black women actually um outpace them and yes very true yeah and you, and you see it like when you go to nma when you go to snma when you like just look at like class rosters you can see it yeah and so it's it's really dynamic like I, my hypothesis for that shift was around the same time there was mass in, like the introduction of mass incarceration and this mm-hmm. sure. prison pipeline which disproportionately affect, affects black boys black men um something actually in dr Farabee's story there was this what led her to create the child care uh, after school program for black kids was when she was a resident she got the us call from a police department saying they arrested this little boy this black boy and he said that he knew her and it turned out that wow his mom had to leave for work and the babysitter, which was like one of the other women in the neighborhood was sick that day. And so she wasn't able to babysit him and his, he was maybe like two, three years old. And then his baby brother was maybe like less than one years old. Mm -hmm. Um, So then he just had to stay home and look after his brother and they didn't have any food in the fridge and his baby brother was screaming, crying because he was hungry. Mm-hmm. And so he sees the milkman come across the neighborhood, drop off some milk at one of his neighbor's doors. And he's like, well, my brother is, is hungry. Let me get this milk. And he goes yeah. across the, the street to get the milk for his little brother. This police officer sees him and takes him to the station. And he didn't even Three let years him. Old. Wow. Yeah. He didn't even let him go get his infant brother. So his little brother is like left there in the hospital by himself. Um, but so thankfully, this little boy knew Dr. Farabee. And so very she lucky. Down, yeah, <laughs> she came down to the station, like something that recognized of like the privilege and social capital that yes. physicians are, are given in our society, that if she was just a, a black woman with a job that doesn't have that same power really um she might not have been able to advocate for him in the same way and get him out but she's like i'm gonna give you these few quarters that cost that one milk carton and you're gonna let go of this little boy um and so she took him home and stayed with the two kids until their mom was able to get home and she just recognized like this disparity of if like the parents are working hard doing what they can to provide for their kids but if they don't have a large enough social network to help right. with the raising of the kids, then they can be put in these environments where, of course, you're going to try to get food and milk for your baby brother. Like, that's right. not malicious. But no, then right. because he's a black kid, he's not treated and given the same grace as other other kids. Um, yeah, that would not have so happened true. way. Not black I don't know. I mean, the people who are historically oppressed and who cannot advance and achieve basic necessities, 
Yeah. Yeah. Things will happen. <laughs> and there's yeah. a system of mass incarceration that and privatized and ready to make money based on that alone. So um yeah, I think um I, that that decline, there's actually a decline in graduating African American male mm. physicians. Yeah. Because imagine if that little boy like did not have that advocate and he had the potential to become a physician, but now right. he's in the prison system because um, he right. was trying to get milk for his baby brother. Um, exactly. No, it's it's sad. It's very sad, but very important to talk about and very yeah. important to uh, acknowledge. Like this is like, you know, black men, it's not like they're just like dumber and don't want to go to medical school. It's just they don't, you know, the opportunities just are, are not there, unfortunately. Yeah. So. Um, but no, those are great stories, and uh, we appreciate you making the time for us. I mean, this has been great, and uh, again, we encourage everyone to buy the book. And since you're still in med school right now, we'd like you to tell what would you tell someone who's struggling in med school and undergrad trying to make it? What would you tell them to help them get through? I would encourage them as, as soon as they feel like they're struggling to reach out for help. Um, there's no yeah. shame in that, and I think. A lot of people may feel like, oh, if they need to reach out to their professor, if they need to get a tutor, there's something wrong with them. But something that I I learned um, in my high school when I was the only black student and having other people in those AP classes that mm-hmm. these other students are getting having tutors to get ahead. Yep. Um, but people <laughs> are then feeling like made to feel ashamed to get a tutor because they're, they might be getting behind. It's like, there's no shame in that. Like, that's that's kind of a cheat code that people have that they don't talk about. Um, exactly. Advance. Um, the hidden yeah. curriculum people don't talk about. Exactly. Yeah. That. It's all um, true. And so, yeah, so reach out for help. Tap into your community. Um, people who will support you and remind you of who you are, even in those moments that you may not see yourself. Um that's why we're really encouraging that you can do it one one step at a time. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Awesome. Awesome advice. I, yes. I, um, if I could, Jasmine, I have to take one moment to acknowledge the fact that you talked about Dr. Marilyn Gaston. I was a mm-hmm. Gaston scholar at University of Cincinnati. Oh, and I met that's her. awesome. And, uh, I just think it's wonderful. And um, serendipitous that we we you wrote about her we're talking and Mm -hmm. um her impact is just it's 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 going on and on so i love that that's so awesome yeah i got to speak to her on the phone a couple months ago and and tell her um basically like it was difficult at first to find get in contact with her prior to the book coming out but as it was starting to get more traction um, some people, actually, I think it was a former NMA president. He found out about my book and sent it to a couple people and, and she was on the email list. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> I, I was like, oh, Dr. Gaston, like, are, did, were you involved in sickle cell research? Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, that's me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, can I talk to you on the phone? Like, I want to tell you something. And it was so special us getting to talk. Uh, she also is a sore. She's an honorary AKA. Um, very cool and it's just it was it's really awesome being able to um share with her that like honoring her with with my book and and just to be able to like actually connect with her as a person so yeah that's really cool that's awesome 
Yeah, I love it. It's, it's, it's great. It's great, to, it's great to feel like you're part of a community. So that's awesome. Yeah. And I think that's what your book is doing. It's making everyone feel like they're part of the same community. So mm. it's awesome. Yeah. We appreciate you. We appreciate everyone for listening. And thank you guys so much. Until next time, stay low and keep firing. Keep firing. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your pods. I I probably will take a neuroradiology elective, um, so we'll see if I'm surprised. I really like I really like neuroradiology, like the imaging that I saw in, when mm-hmm. I was in neurology. Yeah. But it's it's interesting. I think like there's a you know there's going to be an interesting intersection between actual neuroscience and neuroradiology and yeah. functional MRI and all that. So I think you never know. You might be yeah. joining the dark side. You never know. <laughs> you might. I mean. <laughs>